time slipping away from us, and I'm going to ask you to do something for your benefit. I found out long ago that the heart cannot absorb any more than the seat can endure. So I'm going to ask you to stand and let's read together the text in 2 Kings, the 6th chapter. 2 Kings, chapter 6 and verse number 24. Here's what the Bible says, and you'll follow carefully in these few verses of Scripture. You'll, watch, you'll notice in these verses some very sickening things, and some things that might even cause you to feel a little queasy in your stomach. But here's what the Word of God says. And it came to pass after this that Benadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver, or eighty pieces of silver. And the fourth part of a cab of doves dung for five pieces of silver. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord do not help thee, when shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him, and she hath hid her son. And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the woman, that he rent his clothes, and he passed by upon the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Then he said, God do so, and more also to me, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. Thank you, and you may be seated. There is much more to this story than the few verses that I've read, but I think we have read enough to gain an insight into this particular incident though tragic as it was in the life of the people of Israel. Here is the story and a word picture of the tragedy of famine. Few of us, if any, know anything from a personal standpoint of the suffering that is involved in the lives of people because of famine. And yet there are many, we're told tonight, in perhaps over half of the population of the world that go to bed hungry every night. I'm sure you have seen on television news or in the magazines pictures of those lands that are in the death grip of famine. Little children wandering about the streets with bloated stomachs and eyes that are sunk back in their heads the terrible, mournful crying of those who suffer the pains of hunger. 
It is enough indeed to cause anyone who has any sympathy and feeling for humanity to be disturbed and distressed. A physical famine indeed then is a very tragic and disheartening thing. But tonight I want us to look not at a physical famine, but rather a spiritual famine that seems to prevail in the lives of so many, even if, uh, though surprisingly so, even in fundamental Bible-believing churches and communities. I do not mean that we have a lack of the Word of God available for us, but rather the famine that is so evident in the life of God's men and women in Bible-believing churches is because though the Word is there and before them, they fail to feed on the very Word of God that is the food to the soul and the spirit of the child of God. In this particular instance, then, there are several things that I want you to look at that will reveal the tragedy of a spiritual famine. Look, if you will, at verse 24, and the Bible in this verse reveals to us the relentless foe that man faces. He is pictured here by Benadad, the king of Syria. For Benadad had long been the enemy of God's people. Time and again, he had sought to overthrow and destroy the people of God. But time and again as well, the children of God were graciously and gloriously spared of any kind of an assault upon them. And thus they saved many lives and spared themselves of many a wound and many an affliction. The Bible reveals from the first part of this passage of the Word of God that when the king of Syria would set up an ambush along the way, ready to pounce upon the children of Israel, that strangely and mysteriously, a man would learn about it and tell the king of Israel the plan of the Syrians, and thus they would not go that way, but detour around the ambush that was set up for them. Now, the truth of it is this. That man in Israel who learned all of the secrets of the enemy was a prophet of God by the name of Elisha. Elisha did not have a hidden microphone in the secret offices and chambers of King Benadad. He did not have any bugging devices, but he simply learned of the movement of the enemy by reason of the Holy Spirit of God, who not only knew Elisha, but also knew the enemy and was very much aware of what the enemy was trying to do. So when Benadad would plan to pounce upon and destroy the children of Israel, the Holy Spirit informed Elisha, Elisha tell the king of Israel, and thus uh, the plan was foiled. Well, the king of, uh, of Syria, Benadad, became very enraged at the spoiling of all of his plans. He called a special meeting of all of the heads of staff. And one after the other, the Bible reveals that he said to them, Who of us is for the king of Israel? 
and one after the other, the men avowed their allegiance to King Benadad and said, Your Majesty, we're all loyal, we're all for you, and this is none of our fault. Finally, one Syrian leader must have had enough courage to stand and say, Your Majesty, I know where the leak is. I know where the information's leaking out. And the king inquired, where is it? And he said, there's a prophet in Israel by the name of Elisha. And everything you speak in the privacy of your bedchamber, he tells the king of Israel. Well, that enraged old Benadad and anger filled his heart. And he said, if that's the case, then there's one thing only for us to do. And that's to hunt this prophet down and destroy him. So he calls out his commando units and searches them or sends them, dispatching them out across the country in search of Elisha. Finally, they come to a little village named Dothan. And there they wait for having learned that Elisha was in the village below. They thought it best to wait until first light of the next day. And so they waited. First light came. But down in the village where Elisha and his servant were abiding, early in the morning, the servant of the man of God walks out on the, in the front of their place of dwelling and looks around and when he does, he sees the Syrian raiders encamped around them. He runs back in, informing Elisha, and says to him, How shall we do? Now notice he did not say, What shall we do? But he said, How are we going to do it? He knew something could be done. He just didn't understand how it could be done. They were outnumbered. And so Elisha said, don't you know that greater are they that are with us than they that are with them? I imagine that servant of the man of God must stretch his head and thought, well, he's lost his mind. There's just two of us, and you're all these crap units of the commando, uh, your tri units of Syria, and here he's saying we've got more with us. And Elisha simply said, if you don't mind, I'd like to have a word of prayer. And he bowed his head, and here's what he prayed. Lord, open his eyes. Say, I like that kind of brief praying when you're in a crisis, don't you? And listen, young man and woman, mother and dad, there's going to come a crisis in your life someday. Oh, you may not face it right now, but sooner or later it'll come. And you'd better be on praying ground and on right terms with God so you can get a quick telegram through to headquarters that God can come to your rescue. I'm afraid if some of us were in a crisis like facing a head-on collision in an automobile with a drunken driver, I'm afraid we wouldn't have enough time to confess our meanness and get things straightened out for those we have all against and square our lives up. Oh, listen, you'd better do that now. For on your way home tonight, you may face a crisis. In your life here at camp, you may face a crisis and you're not going to have 30 minutes to straighten things out. Elisha was ready to pray. And the crisis was upon him and he prayed, Lord, open his eyes. I like that kind of praying. Nothing gives me the heebie-jeebies anymore than for somebody to be called on in a service to pray and they wind up praying 15 or 20 minutes of the worship service. Now, I'm not against praying, but I, I, when you come to church, you ought to have your praying done before you get there. Uh, you ought to not take up all the time catching up on all the praying that you should have caught up on a day or so before. 
I know some folks I even have they call them to pray in church. I know they're going to go all the way around the world before they ever stop. I think you need to get out of business. It's time for business when you come to God's house. And I think you ought to get on with it. I think the man up home had a reputation of being a long-winded prayer. He said he went into a fellow's room in the hospital. The man was very ill. And he walked in, seeing the man very ill, some of the boys of the man standing around the foot of the bed. And the old fellow stood there for a minute, looked at one of the sons and said, Do you mind if I pray for your father? And one of the young men remembered how long-winded the praying fellow was. And he said, well, preacher, he said, uh, I guess so. He didn't want to hurt his feelings. So the old fellow cut into praying. And he just kept on praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. And finally prayed about everything here he could think about. And then he started praying for all the missionaries. Lord bless the missionaries in Russia. Over in Germany, in Japan, down in India. Lord bless them down in Africa. And he named every mission field he could think of. And finally said, Amen. Look across the front of the bed of the boy and said, Well, son, how is it? The young man looked back at him and said, well, I hate to tell you this preacher, but he died while you was in India. Well, I think, I think in truth there's a time to do some long praying and there's time to get out to business. Don't you agree to that? So here's what I'm saying. Elisha sent up a simple prayer and God opened the eyes of his servant. He went back out and when he looked this time, he saw all of the heavenly hosts gathered about watching over the servant of God. I want to tell you this, young man, young woman, mother, dad, if you're a child of God, you're God's possession, you're God's property, and if he has to dispatch every angel and every soldier in heaven and every weapon in his arsenal at, for, to take care of you, I believe with all of my heart he'd do that. That's reading the devil's barking and howling doesn't upset me. That's reading what people say and do in relation to my ministry doesn't bother me. Listen, if you're in God's will and you're walking with God, God will take care of you. I believe that with all of my heart. And so here Elisha, my servant, finds that all of God's army is out to take care of him. Well, they wait and soon a knock comes to the door and the captain of the Syrian raiders walks up. Elisha says to his servant, never mind, I'll answer it this time. He walked to the door and the captain of the army said, Sir, uh, we're looking for a man by the name of Elisha. Elisha had just prayed by the time he got his hand on the doorknob and he prayed this time, Lord, blind their eyes. And the Lord heard and when the Syrian captain looked at Elisha, he didn't even recognize him. And Elisha said, Sure, I'll help you. If you'll follow me, I'll show you to him. That's kind of humorous to me. Here's the man he's looking for and he doesn't even know it. And Elisha's going to lead him out. So he comes out of the house. The Syrian army follows him. And he goes up a winding trail. And just before he gets ready to stop, he simply has another brief prayer meeting. And he prays the prayer again. Lord, open their eyes. And the Syrian raiders open their eyes. And they saw encircling around them all of the army of Israel. Can you imagine the embarrassment and the shame and, and, and all of the disgrace they felt having been tricked by this man Elisha and now they're right in the middle of their enemy Israel and the king of Israel comes running out and says, Hey, what do you want me to do, Elisha? Cut their heads off? And Elisha said, Oh, no. You wouldn't do that if you captured a man in battle, would you? Why, give them some bread and water and send them home. 
I can imagine one of those Syrian raiders turned his friend and said, hey, I'd rather he had cut my head off, hadn't you? than to send me back to old King Benadad and have to tell him that once again our plans have been spoiled, we have been tricked, our plans are just haywire. Oh, but they went back and had to tell the story. And I've told you all of this to say this. You would think at that point Benadad would call his staff in and say, Gentlemen, I've had enough of this bunch of Jews. They have fooled us. They have ruined our plans. They have, they have defeated us. They have made fools out of us. And we're not going to bother with that bunch of Jews anymore. We're through with them. But oh no. He is a relentless foe. He's defeated on one front and another. But he doesn't stop. Listen to me carefully. There's many a Christian who comes to a place of comfort and relaxation and ease in his life when he's gained a victory in some one area of his living and he thinks, boy, old Slewfoot, the devil's not going to bother me anymore. But you better think again. He may back off for a while, but he's not through with you. He'll wait until the opportunity arises that's just right to bring his assault upon your life. Young Christian man and woman, listen. The devil's watching your life. And he's seeking to ruin your testimony, rob you of your influence, destroy your happiness as a Christian bring great wounds in your heart and destroy you and get you out of a battle for Jesus Christ and he'll wait and wait until he thinks the right opportunity has come in order to conquer you and defeat you. I dare say you can think about some Christian right now whose life has been ruined by sin. And you've wondered all the while, wonder why, wonder how I got into that. Wonder how she fell into such a terrible sin as that. The devil studies you like a boxer studies his opponent before he gets in the ring with him. The boxer sits down in a dark room. His trainer turns on the projector and he sits there hour after hour and watches foot after footage of film of his opponent that he'll be boxing and he studies every move. And after a moment or so, the trainer will say, stop the film right there. Did you see him drop his guard? Watch for that. He's careless. He doesn't keep his guard up. And did you notice at that other particular scene and he moves into that spot? Did you see his eyes? He took his eyes off of his opponent. They dropped to the floor. That's a weakness. You watch for that. And when you see it in the ring, knock him out. The devil studied your life. He knows your weaknesses and he knows your strong points as well. He won't bother you so much on the strong points until your strength sometimes becomes your weakness. And sometimes we think we're strong in a certain area and we get relaxed about that and there's where our weakness comes and the devil begins to come against us. Listen, here's what Peter said about our relentless foe that we face in 2 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Your adversary, your foe, the devil, as a roaring lion goes about seeking whom he may devour. And the devil can knock you over and conquer you. He'll sit back and laugh at his victory for having thrown you. 
Some of you Christian teenagers in high school, the devil's watching you. The rest of the crowd at school know that you profess to be a child of God. They've watched you. They know the places you go. They know the crowds you go around with. They know the things you do, the things you say, the habits you have. They know all of that. And the devil's just waiting for the right moment so he can destroy your influence to keep you from bringing some other young person to Jesus Christ. Watch carefully. Dad watched Samaria. He waited for the right moment and then he masses a, a whole, a, he gets the whole army and gets together a massive invasion against the people of Israel. They go up and the Bible said that he besieged Samaria. Literally, he encircled it. And you know what his plan was? His tactic was to cut them off from any bread or food or nourishment. And knowing that if he could do that, he would so weaken them that they would not be able to stand in resistance to the enemy's aggression and perhaps would not even want to because of the hunger pains that they had inside. That's what the devil's trying to do to you. He wants to cut you off from spiritual food. Now then, bread in the Bible has a twofold symbolism. Number one, it is a symbol of the living bread, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible said in John chapter 6, as Jesus spoke and gave that great discourse on the bread of life, he said in verse 33, 4, and 5, he said something like this, I am the bread of heaven. He that eateth of this bread shall never hunger. Jesus said, I am the bread. Not only is bread a symbol of the living bread, but bread is a symbol of the written bread, or we could say it like this, a symbol of the living word, the Lord Jesus, and a symbol, secondly, of the living word or the written word, which is this Bible you hold in your hand, the spiritual food that alone can keep you strong and healthy and robust spiritually. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. No person in this room can ever be the strong, healthy Christian you ought to be apart from a daily diet of the Word of God. I'm hitting home. Some of you tried to be good Christians, but you haven't been eating right. You haven't been nourishing the spiritual life. You've been kind of drifting along on the strength of some Christian friend or a Christian pastor or a mother and dad and there's not strength in you to stand alone because there's no daily devouring and reading and study of the Word of God. But you'll never be what you ought to be without a daily consuming of this precious book, the Word of God. Now then watch what I'm going to say. If you were to do without physical food like you do spiritual food, half of you'd be sick. If you do without physical food, you might make it for a little while, but the first thing you know, every germ, virus, bug, bacteria that is harmful that came through, you'd catch it like that. Down you'd be flat on your back, weaker still, and unable to do the task. So it is in your spiritual life when you fail to feed upon the Word of God, you grow weak. There is no aggressiveness in your life. There is no ability to stand. There is no ability to fight the good fight of faith. You're weak spiritually because
because of the failure to feed on the Word of God. Will you say our preacher believes the Bible? Our preacher preaches the Bible Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Say, could you make it on three meals a week physically? I can take, tell you right now, the looks of this crowd, nobody's doing that around here. I can tell by the size. But yet again, we try to do that spiritually. We go to church Sunday morning and we let Pastor Bill or some of your pastor, whatever it may be, feed the Word of God. And then we all week long, we get weak. We're not able to resist. Now, Benadad watched Samaria. And when they were just at the right place, boy, he came in upon them. That was his plan. But carefully observe. The weak moment is the moment when the devil will attack you. And he'll knock you over with a featherweight temptation. Won't take much. Just that. Come at you with a jab, down you go. You're not even stand against it. So, if you fail to get in the Word of God, you're going to weak. And watch what happens as a result of the lack of this book. The lack of bread and nourishment. Strange appetites arise. And overwhelms and conquers when we have a proper nourishment. You see what they're eating in Samaria? Acid heads. Donkey heads. Something like an old Georgia or South Carolina mule's head. Hardly anything to them. A lot of bones, a little bit of skin, a few hairs, and no brains. And people are paying 80 pieces of silver for an acid head. For what? To mount it on the wall in the den? No, they're hungry. And they want to eat it. And they're paying five pieces of silver for the droppings of doves they scrape up off the street. Refuse. Can you imagine human beings wanting to eat anything like that? Hey, how would you feel if I came over to your cabin tonight or to your house? And I had on a nice tray an acid head. And I said, hey, I knew you're probably hungry. I just want to raise this old mule's head and maybe kind of satisfy your hunger and your appetite. Well, you'd say, what on earth do you think you're doing? What's an insult to me? I don't eat that kind of garbage. Throw it out the garbage truck and let that moon back crowd take care of it. I don't want, I don't want that. It's an insult to me. Do you know the devil succeeds in giving asses, heads, and doves dumb to young men and women? And it looks appealing to them. They desire it because they're not fed on the food that's nourishment of the Word of God. Watch what I'm telling If you're well fed on the Word of God and your spiritual life is strong, you go home and turn TV on. And all of a sudden, and you can hardly turn it on without this anymore. Some guy gets to cussing. I know it sounds more like you ought to say curse, but it sounds more like we say cuss. Here they're cussing. Some immoral, suggestive scene before you. Some woman, well, I start to say dress. Some woman not enough clothes on to make a pair of bridges for a flea. And you look at that thing and your spiritual fed, you know what your reaction will be? Turn it off. Nobody's going to cuss like that in front of my family. Nobody's going to teach immorality in this family. Nobody's going to do that. We don't believe in that. Get up and turn it off. 
But you've gone for a long while without any spiritual food. You go home and turn that on, here comes the ashes, heads, and the doves done, and the garbage. And strangely enough, it looks at people. Now, what I'm trying to get across to you is this, the importance of your daily getting in the Word of God. You can go to every Christian camp you want to. You can attend a Bible-believing church. But you'll never be able to resist the devil and all that he offers you in the garbage and trash unless you daily, personally, get in the Word of God and feed upon it. So, the weak moment is there and strange appetites are up. It's reading you wonder about some professed Christian. I wonder why they always out there at that old Hollywood theater. Old, old immoral, suggestive, lewd scenes. Wonder why they read that kind of literature. Wonder why they run around that crowd. They haven't been fed. They haven't been eating properly, and they're they're rumbling through garbage cans trying to find something to satisfy. But they'll never satisfy. The prodigal son, when he got down in that distant land and got without food, the Bible said that he would have fallen to me. As a professed Christian, do you daily have a time to get in the Word of God? Do you have time to get out and read something from the Scripture and to let God speak to you and nourish you and feed you? Oh, how needful in your life and mine. And then I want you to watch something else. When all of this takes place, the king of Israel comes out and starts walking around the walls, surveying this tragic scene. And as he's walking around, seeing about his people, all of a sudden from beneath the wall he hears a cry. And a woman's voice says, help my lord, O king. And the king is frustrated like the leaders of our world. At the pitiful cry of the soul hunger of men, he has no answer. But he says in frustration, how can I help you? If God doesn't help you, how can I? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine fridge? Doesn't that sound just like the world leaders today? You're a miserable man or woman, and they say, yes. So bored in life and dissatisfied, yes. So hungry inwardly, yes. So empty, yes. All I can give you is the scrapings off the barn floor. Wild party. Anything goes. Take off the bridle. Do away with any inhibitions you have. Go ahead and indulge. And the world is saying this is what we offer you. Or they say we'll give you something out of the wine press. We'll get you drunk. And maybe you can escape reality for a little while. That's the reason many a teenager gets hooked on drugs. That's reason many a mother and daddy gets on narcotics. That's reason many a person gets on liquor and, wine, and beer and wine. and They become so absorbed in that they, they somehow are able to escape a world of reality. They don't want to see the reality. But a man's a fool who doesn't face reality. There's no way of escape through drunkenness and drugs. There's no escape through wild sexual kind of living. Ah, oh, but these now the king said, I get you drunk, maybe you can forget it. And that's what the world's teaching people today. Hollywood teaches that over the television too. John and Mary have a little domestic quarrel. John gets mad, Mary's mad, so he runs out the door, slams the door, heads down to the local bar to get him a drink. 
Hollywood has Mary getting her a drink. She beats him to the bar. They've got one in the house and she swallows her little jigger full. Hollywood is saying to your mind, suggesting when you get in trouble, that's the thing to do. We can give you something out of the wine press. Little old Joe on the totem pole comes running across the street and a cowboy dressed in a black outfit on a black horse, two pearl-handled pistols on his side, comes riding into town. Little Joe upsets him when he runs in front of his horse and the gunslinger says, we'll have a shootout at, at noon right here in the street. Little Joe on the totem pole scared out of his skin and runs down the saloon, gets him a little liquor to give him a backbone. Hollywood saying when you're afraid, drink a little. If you'll get a little swallow down your goozle, then maybe you'll be man enough to face the problem. A man that has to have liquor to help him face his problems in life is no man at all. And liquor's never solved your problem, never solved anybody's problem, never has created more than it's ever solved. Yet here's what I'm saying. The kid, this, this king said, I can't help you. If God doesn't help you, then he softened to this. And he said, what's wrong? woman said, this woman and I made an agreement that today we would eat my son. So we boiled him and ate him. Can you imagine mothers eating their children? Cannibal. And now she said, this woman has broken our agreement. She's hid her son. We don't have anything to eat. Watch this, young people. When you do without the proper bread, the word of God, your spiritual life, the things that are real, valuable, and precious become cheap in your sight. They're of no value. And when you get away from the word of God, values become lessened little in your life. Isn't it strange what values people have today? They have put all this on things that are garbage. You ever hear this crowd? I mean, they, they don't value the business of soul winning and prayer and attendance house of God. Uh, there, there is this out there in the world. They want to go to the ball. They'll go to the ball game if there's one on Wednesday night. They'll stay at home and watch television on Sunday night instead of being in the house of God. They'd rather be out doing something else than knocking on the door telling somebody about Jesus and inviting some other house of God. Their values are so little. The things that really count are pushed in second place. The things that are really that really matter eternally, they're of little consequence. All because of failure to feed on the Word of God and have the soul nourished and satisfied. Are y'all following me in what I'm saying? Do that if you are. If you don't, I'm going to start all over. Will you do it? Okay. Now watch carefully. I need you to <laughs> All right. So here's what happens when you get without the word. Things that are valuable becomes the chief. You hear these grumblers, Brother Jewel sang about, come to the house of God, and if a, if a church gives an offering to a missionary, an evangelist, or something that's of any size, you'll always hear some old tight wadded skin flint in the crowd and say, I don't want to go give a kind of money to a missionary. I still want money. And you hear, you know why? Hadn't been eaten right. The values are somewhere else. Same crowd doesn't think Fame about spending a thousand dollars for a colored television set. Same crowd doesn't think Fame about spending from ten to fifteen thousand dollars for an automobile and take four years to pay it out. Same crowd doesn't think anything about spending eight dollars a head to take the family to Six Flags. 
Now, I'm not against all that. I went to Six Flags once for my family. Spent $8 to get in, paid a dollar and a half for a hot dog, and 60 cents for a package of Rolaids. Highest price hot dog and Rolaids I've ever had in my life. When we got in the car and started home, my kids were excited. Oh, they loved it. Can you imagine me being such a sour puss and turn around and say, well, I think we're so much money was being for happiness in the family. But that's why we have some folks in the house of God. The values are misplaced in life when you get away from the word of God. When I lived in Memphis, Tennessee, Tom Jones, the infamous rock singer, came to Memphis. And he had a rock concert. 10,000 people came out. And as he began to perform and do his suggestive gyration and sing his suggestive lyrics with the suggestive immoral beat of rock music, young ladies began to throw undergarments on the platform. And yet there are some people who come up and say, well, I don't see anything wrong with rock music. You must have been dropped on your head when you was a baby, if that's your conclusion. <laughs> and if I was you, I wouldn't sleep on my side and out your brain might run out your ears. <laughs> you know, got a lot of people come up. I don't see anything wrong with that. What's your, listen, you know why? And been feeding on the Word of God. They have no judgment between right and wrong. They have no spirit of discernment that comes from the Word of God. So I don't see anything wrong. Our values are cheapened when you get away from the Word of God. And then I've got to close. Time got away from it. If you look at your watch, I'll have 15 minutes of the sermon, though. When the king heard that, he reached up, got his garment, and just ripped her over. And when he did, underneath, there was a garment of sackcloth exposed. Sackcloth's an old rough material and it's irritating to the skin. Why do you wear that? It was a symbol in those days of repentance. He was saying, I repent. I can imagine some dear old saint, man or woman beneath the wall, saw their king do that, and they must have begun to weep and say, Oh, thank God, our king has recognized that we're in all of this trouble because we've forgotten God and disobeyed him. And they had. But hey, don't shout too loud. He's going through the motions, but there's no reality in what he's doing. He's hypocritical in his repentance. We've got a lot of folks who hang out the sign, but what's in the heart is a far different story. They're supposed to have repented, but they're the same old character. They're supposed to have been saved, but the same old person. They walk down the aisle, they sign the card, they join the church, preacher, baptize them. They've got the sign and the symbol, but no Christ in the heart. We've got a lot of folks in that boat. We've got a lot of folks who've got names on the church roll book, don't know any more about salvation than a hog knows about Sunday. Never have invited Christ in their heart. Now, you say, preacher, that's pretty terrible, pretty strong indictment against the king. You're saying he's hypocritical in his repentance. How do you know that? Read the next statement. The Bible said that the king of Israel said, God do so and more to me also. If tomorrow at this time the head of Elisha shall stand on him, I hate that prophet. I'm going to cut his head off. And you know why I know he hadn't repented? He didn't love the servant of God. And one evidence that you've repented is the fact that you love 
God's people. But this king said, I hate it. What do you think somebody, if you came down this aisle tonight, made a big show, shed tears all over the altar here, got up, introduced everybody, and said he's gotten saved. And he started out the door and grabbed the sergeant back there and said, say, who is that fellow up there with all that hair on his head, wearing them glasses, making all the announcements up there? Who was that fellow? Well, Brother Sarge said, that's our pastor, Brother Reed. I hate him. I'm going to cut his head off. If I ever meet him out in the woods somewhere in the dark, I'll, I'll shoot him. I hate him. Do you think Sarge would pat that fellow on the back and say, glory to God, boy, you really got converted. I'll tell you that. You are really one more repentant man. That's ridiculous. And yet we've got a lot of folks say, oh, yeah, I'm saved, but I just hate that old preacher. I hate old so-and-so. I doubt if you're really saved. Word of God said, if a man hates his brother, he is a murderer. And we know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Listen, young man or woman, mother, dad, when you really repent, when you really become a child of God, I guarantee the attitude of your heart will change toward God's people. I was up at Tennessee Temple University in a revival meeting, and a young lady came around on Friday night, and her hair was wet. She'd just been baptized. She slipped around and put her hand in mine and said, Brother Walter, I have something I want to confess. And I laughingly said, okay, that would be $5 for confessions. She smiled and said, seriously, I do. And I said, what do you want to say? She said, when you came to our church last Sunday morning, I didn't like you. Sunday night, I liked you less. Monday night, I hated you. Tuesday night, I hoped you'd drop dead. Wednesday and Thursday night, I was praying and hoping you'd have an accident and somehow couldn't get here to this church. But she said tonight when you preached and gave the invitation, I was the first one down the aisle. And I bowed in this altar and asked Jesus Christ in my heart. And I've just followed the Lord in baptism. And she said, I just wanted to tell you, I love you. Now listen, I haven't changed any. Still loud mouth, bald-headed, ugly. But I'm going to tell you something that had changed. A young lady's heart. A heart that had come into contact with Jesus Christ. And Paul said, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. One great mark of a child of God is love in his heart for others. And so... Here the king has a show of repentance, but he's not real. Hey, have you hung out the sign, but you don't have anything that's real? I'm interested in the real McCoy and the genuine article. When I go to a restaurant, I don't read the plastic-coated menu and all that nice food they've got on there. And look at it and say, boy, that sure looks good. And I pick up the menu and start eating away on that plastic menu. I'm not going to do that. That's the sign. I'm interested in what they got in the kitchen. When you get your paycheck, your pay for your day's work or your week's work, how would you feel if the paymaster, when you came by, got him some blue horse notebook paper and started writing dollar signs down on it and handing it out to you? Would you say, hey, wait a minute. That's a dollar sign, but I want the real thing. God is saying, when he looks at you and me, I want the genuine article. And Joel, the prophet of God, recorded his words as he said, Rend your hearts and not your garments. I'm not interested in your signs and symbols. I want something that's real. I have two things I ask. 
Number one, do you have the real article? Have you really been born again? Have you really received Christ as your Savior? Number two, I want to ask you as a Christian this question. Do you have a daily time when you get in the Word of God? Do you study it? Do you read it? Now we have time for everything else. Television, newspapers, funny books. But you have the time for this book. We say, bro, bro, I read the Bible, but I don't understand it. Don't feel like a lone ranger. I don't understand all I read either. But I'm going to tell you something you will do. You will understand some things you read. And even the things you don't read, if you'll give God time in your daily schedule, even things you don't understand can be nourishment to your life spiritually. Did you ever eat one of these French-covered, these French dishes, uh, casserole? Did you ever eat one of those? Because just whole gobble stuff in there that's covered up and buried with cheese. <laughs> you ever eat, my wife fixed them up once in a while when I get home from eating, and she'll put it down on the table, and I said, what in the world is that? She'd say, don't worry about it, try it. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm interested in what's in there. She said, don't worry about it, I think you'll enjoy it. When she turned her back, I'd get my fork and peel the cheese back and start fingering through all that. And I'd say, uh-huh, there's a bean and there's a tater and there's a hunk of corn. But what on earth is that? And I'd say to her, hey, what's this? She said, don't worry about it. Go ahead. It'll do you good. You'll enjoy it. You'll like it. And I'll sit there looking at that and she'll sometimes come over and just ram a spoon down that thing and just push it in my mouth. And boy, before I know it, I'd say, that sure is good. I like some more of that. Now, here's what I was thinking. Is it just the things in that casserole that I know? Is that what nourishes me? Or is it everything in there, the things I know and the things I don't need? All of it. And there are some things that you read in the Word of God you will understand. There are some things you may not grasp at the moment. But in the fact that you've given God time and you've taken a, a, a few moments in the day to let the Lord speak to you, you will be nourished. And I want to challenge you here tonight. If you're saved and you do not daily read the Word of God, I want to challenge you tonight to before God pledge to Him, Lord God, if you'll be my helper and you'll strengthen me, I'll get in your book every day. I'm going to read the Word of God. Let's bow our heads for prayer.